Welcome to AmateurLogic.tv, episode eight. I'm George. And I'm Jim. And I'm Tommy. And as you can see, we're uh, separated today uh, by a little distance. <laughs> <laughs> and by a couple of other things. Yeah. Jim and I are here in uh, Mississippi at the uh, regular location. Of course, Tommy is in Missouri, his new residence. Say hi, Tommy. Hey, everybody. We're trying a little test here to see if we can get things to work from uh, two remote locations. So far, it looks like it's going to be pretty promising. Yeah, this will be a, a new trial for us. Um, we were using Skype video uh, with Tommy from Missouri, and we're using the Skype audio as well. Plus, we'll be doing uh, some live camera shots that he's taking there as well. So, it's going to be an interesting uh, episode, we think. Yes, it's definitely different, definitely high tech. And definitely a lot more work editing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, George, what have we got first up? Jim, you know, uh, Intel just released the new um, dual-core Pentium chips. Right. Uh, the hyper-threaded models have been out for a while, and, you know, it's basically one processor, and they were doing some... Uh, uh, fancy transistor switching in there to make it kind of appear like you had two processors, but the dual core is actually uh, two processors on one chip. Yeah, that's right. So um, what we're doing this time is looking at a comparison of an Intel 3.2 gig hyper-threaded chip against an Intel 3.2 gig dual core chip. Ooh. Now both of these machines have one gig of memory in them and um, one of them, which is, uh, well, let's see, mine, the one that has a dual-core chip in it, it's loaded down with Norton antivirus, uh, a couple of anti-spyware programs I was running Outlook, uh, Windows Explorer. In other words, the dual-core machine was loaded up pretty good with other processes. As a matter of fact, let's look at the video here. You can see on the hyper-threaded machine here what's loaded. Looking in the task manager, we see we've got a few things loaded. Now I look at the dual core, and you can see we've got almost twice as many processes running there. Ah, I see. All right, we go. Both machines are started up here. And we're going to move things around and zoom in a little bit. Now we're using cameras to shoot this rather than uh, screen capture software because we didn't want that to get into the test. And what we're doing ah. is we are... Uh, using probably the toughest test I know, and that's using QuickTime to do some H.264 compression on video. Okay, so that's what it's doing right now. Is it's it's uh, the movie that it's exporting is uh, an H.264 encoded movie. Yes, and um, you can see where are we right now? How far along? Seventeen percent on the dual core, and on the hyper-threaded. Uh, I wonder how far along we are on it. It ought to show us here in just a second. Okay. How big a file is this, George? Um, or how I, many minutes? This is the uh, uh, Season 2 promo that's on the air right now. And, okay. Or on the, <laughs> on the Internet right now. What are we at on hyper-threaded there? Uh, about 19%. It's running uh, at least fairly close. At this point. At this point. Okay. Well, we'll keep watch on that, and uh, let's cover a little email here in the meantime. Okay. All right, Jim, why don't you go first? Okay, what do you sure. have here for us? Well, I got one here from Chuck in Chicago, and Chuck says, Hey, you guys have asked viewers about the mix between amateur radio and computer tech. 
In my opinion, you have the perfect balance right now, so don't change. Thanks, Chuck. Uh, more uh, either and the pace would slow. So I like how you guys do it. The ride along the Wi-Fi range vidcast with the narrative in the pickup truck was great. Thanks again. When am I going to get my next fix? April is over and nothing is posted. <laughs> well, uh, we guess. covered that. I yeah. guess this is it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in the next, we did actually have episode seven came out. Was it in May? I believe we released. Yes. And we explained back in episode seven uh, the reason that we skipped April, and we'll probably skip April next year again. Maybe. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. I've got a similar email, Jim. Oh, okay. Uh, this came uh, from our friend Dwayne. And he said, uh, did you guys fall off the planet? <laughs> when can we expect the next show? Well, here it is. Here it is, Dwayne. <laughs> <laughs> Tommy, have you got an email? I sure do. I've got one from George, um, a different George, of course. First, I'd like to say I love your episodes. I have downloaded episodes 1, 2, 3, and 7. However, I cannot download episodes 4, 5, and 6. I've tried both QuickTime and Windows formats. It downloads a few megs and hangs. I have also tried the torrents, but it says they do not exist. Need help in, to complete my episode collection. My ADSL is a 3 megabit connection. Anyway, um, we've been having a lot of trouble out of our previous hosting company, GoDaddy. Yes. Um, yeah. A common complaint. Yeah, definitely. We went, you know, back and forth with tech support with them for a long time. They're dropping a lot of packets and the, and the downloads are timing out, so we finally just dropped GoDaddy altogether. And all of the download problems should be resolved. Uh, give them a try again, George, and you should be able to get all the rest of your collection together. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, what about the BitTorrents? He asked about that, too. And they, they were down for a little while. Yeah, that's correct. Was I relocated to another part of the country. I was responsible for running the BitTorrent server. And until I got the machine, the server set back up. But unfortunately, they were down for a short time. But they're all back going now. All right. Cool. Well, let's take a quick look at uh, back at our video here. We're finished the dual core. Finished in four minutes and three seconds. It compressed that uh, video, and I don't remember how long that was. It was pretty fast. I yeah. think the hyperthread is still working on his. Here's the hyperthread still on 63%. And the dual core is already finished, and we've watched part of the video. Yeah. So definitely the dual core chip is faster than the hyper-threaded chip if you're compressing video. Yeah, especially if you're compressing video or, or obviously anything CPU intensive, it's going to be especially more beneficial. Yeah, now I went from a uh, 3.2 gig hyper-threaded straight to a dual core on the same machine, didn't change anything but the processor. And it ended up um, that I couldn't tell any difference. I put the ah. dual core in. I didn't notice anything was, was really any faster until I tried this test. Bingo. Yeah, yeah and that's because not, not much software uses, yep. makes, it, makes use of. Mm -hmm. But in this test, I actually looked at the task manager and you could see that there was different things going on with each processor. Yes. The hyper-threaded just finished at 5 minutes and 26 seconds. 
So overall, a minute and 23 seconds, if my math's right. Yeah. That's pretty impressive for that short of a video clip. I, I've been thinking about upgrading my hyper-threaded machine to a dual core. That may just be the excuse I need to go ahead and do it. Yeah, Tommy, yeah. me too. I'm just a hyper-threaded guy. It uh, really makes a difference on this. Now, this is just a short video. Now, when we go to um, compress episode eight here, I suspect we're going to see uh, quite a bit of uh, time savings on that. And I found out something else during that test. Um, not only did it compress it a lot faster, originally when I ran the test, I didn't know it, but I had two different versions of QuickTime installed. Ah. I had version 7 installed on one of the machines, and 7.1 was installed on the dual-core machine. And in that test, it finished a whole lot faster, the dual-core really? did. And I found that by upgrading uh, from version 7 of QuickTime to version 7.1, that it increased the speed by about 20% wow, on either wow. machine. And the video looks much better. So if you're doing uh, QuickTime compression out there, you probably want to go to version uh, 7.1. It's well worth the download. Apple obviously has put some more programming effort into that. Yes. Yeah, I'll tell you the output actually looks a lot cleaner on the H.264 files from the upgrade version as well. Definitely. Okay, one more from the email bag. This one from Stephen England. Thanks for a great series of shows. You're welcome, Steve. I'm a Florida boy transplanted to a life in England with my wonderful wife Hannah and our son Jack, four years old, and daughter Kai, who's seven. I'm probably mispronouncing that. The homesick geek in me loves to see what's happening on the ham, tech, and photo scenes back home from the more real user perspective of <laughs> ALTV. Thanks again from a dedicated viewer here in the land of fantastic European DX and gapless scanners. An obvious reference to they don't block cell phone reception uh. over there. Steve in England, P.S. I am going to start a BA degree in photography in September. Say cheese, Tommy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Tommy, what, what do you have for us in this episode? Yeah, what you got, bud? Well, it's quite a coincidence that that letter would have been the next one, because uh, it's time for my photo tip segment. We're, today wow. we're going to talk about something that a lot of people have confusion about is what are the best problem formats to, to use? Uh, a lot of you modern cameras now have several different options, and we're going to cover some of them, and I'll show you some benefits and downfalls of some of them. Cool. Hi, welcome to another episode of Photo Tips. Today we're going to talk about something that a lot of people have a lot of misunderstanding about, and that's file formats. While most of your digital cameras default to JPEG, that's not always the best choice. JPEG has some advantages. It's uh, most of your editing software will read and write it by default. It's portable across Linux, uh, Windows, Macintosh, you name it. Any, pretty much anything reads JPEG. Um, the downfall is it's a, it's a lossy compression scheme where actually data that the algorithm thinks that you don't need to view the file in a close representation of the way you took it is actually thrown out. So each time you load that file into your editor, make a change to it, and save it, you're degrading the quality of your image. 
Now there's another format that doesn't do that, and that's TIFF, Tag Image File Format. It's been around a long time. It stores in 8 or 16 bits per pixel, depending on your settings that you choose. And it's, it's non-destructive. It's got, it uses the LZH compression format when you store it in a compressed TIFF, and it's portable across operating systems as well. It's a good format. It's, it takes a lot of space. Um, but if you make a change to your file, it's actually stored, or it may actually manipulates the image data. The one that's overlooked, and it's my personal favorite actually, is the RAW format. If you have one of the higher end point and shoots or a digital SLR, you should have a RAW file format option for your camera, and that stores your data in 12 or 16 bits per pixel as well, just like uh, TIFF files. It takes generally takes less space because most of your raw formats have a compressed version of it. Um, the manipulations, if you choose a saturated setting on your camera or um, a ch different tone curve, and we'll cover those in a later episode what a tone curve is, but different settings like that, that stuff is stored in the header of the file and the image data is left pretty well untouched. So you can make a lot of adjustments to your file without actually destroying or degrading the original image. Much like a negative is for a photo finisher, they take your negative and make a print, but they don't actually manipulate the negative. You can take it to another photo finisher and they could interpret that negative a different way and you could come out with a whole different set of colors, uh, different exposure and so on. Um, the raw format has a downfall, at least one downfall, but uh, what doesn't? But some people think that because some camera manufacturers don't publish the specifications for the raw file, that um, in the future you may not be able to get software to edit those files. There's a movement out. Uh, check out openraw.org if you're interested in finding out some information about um, a movement to try to get camera manufacturers to either use the same format or to at least publish their uh, raw format so independent software vendors in the future can ensure that we have software that will read and write those files, manipulate those files. Um, raw files are another downfall of those is you have to have special software. Generally your camera will come with some software to read and write raw images. You generally read them, do manipulations, and save them in another format, although some software will save it back into the raw file itself, like Nikon Capture or Nikon View. Um, Adobe has a good editor. Um, but it's actually a plug-in for uh, Photoshop or Photoshop Elements. It's called Adobe Camera Raw. And they're pretty good about keeping that thing updated. As new models of digital cameras come out, they're pretty well constantly updating that plug-in that you can download off their website for free, free updates. That's supported in CS2 and above, I believe, and Elements 4. I was mentioning how you have a lot of latitude to do adjustments with the raw file formats. Let's take a look at some damn examples here and I'll show you what I'm talking about. Here we've got four samples that we took. They were taken just a few seconds apart. Um, let's concentrate on these darker ones since they were purposefully underexposed. The only difference is this one is taken with JPEG. It's 8 bits per pixel. This one is taken with RAW, compressed RAW, which is 12 bits per pixel. 
The exposure information is the same and they were taken less than one minute apart. Uh, let's edit the JPEG first. I'm going to edit it using the Nikon editor since that's the one that I'm familiar with. Uh, most of the software comes with your camera. This particular editor is uh, one you have to pay in addition, but the, the regular Nikon editor comes free with Nikon View. It's a download or it actually comes with most of your cameras. As you can see, most of our uh, advanced features are disabled in this software for JPEG files. We do have photo effects, that's your standard brightness adjustment. So let's crank up the brightness some until we get a pretty pleasing uh, exposure over most of the image. That looks pretty good. Let's take a look at our cloud. All of our detail is gone. Let's see the same file. Let's look at the, the raw file version of it. zoom in on our cloud. We have the same photo effects but if you look we've got uh, advanced raw, white balance, noise reduction, a lot of other options that are available. The advanced raw and the white balance adjustments are what actually make the raw images shine. Let's, let's do a little exposure compensation which is essentially doing the same adjustments that you would have made in the camera to make the correct image to start with. If you have a little problem getting your exposure right you can tweak it with this. Now that's a pretty good looking image right there but if you look we've still got a lot of details in our cloud. We've got uh, a lot of other options available sharpening, tone, color mode, saturation, etc. Um, let's take a look at the sharpness of the image. Let's take, we'll see these markings on the side of the dam and they're pretty good, pretty legible if we look at the same markings on the JPEG file, there's a lot of detail that's been lost in this file as opposed to the RAW. This is the data that comes straight off of the camera sensor essentially, whereas the JPEG has been manipulated by the little JPEG engine and the CPU in the camera. And I believe that's uh, due to it having a a small CPU with not much power and it's using a fairly lossy algorithm to be able to save the file do a conversion in a pretty short time frame. But there's a big difference in your file format right there. As you can see there are quite a few benefits to using the raw file format. Um, quite a number of editors out. There's some good open source ones out. Do a search on the web. Um, Anyway, if you ha as always, if you have any tips or comments, please give me an email at tmartin at amateurlogic.tv, and we'll see you next time on Photo Tips. Wow, that was cool, Tommy. I, uh, I now know I will be changing my format because I have been using JPEG. Yeah, I'm going to have to look in my camera, so I'm not sure that it has raw. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, raw format's pretty awesome. That's about all I ever use anymore. Um, if I'm if I need to get some quick prints, I'll, sometimes I'll shoot JPEG. But raw, that's the best way to go. You get the most flexibility in editing, and you get the very best image quality. Um, really, to me, it's about the only option. Um, I got an, I've got an email coming up here um, from Stephen in Canada. 
Love the show, guys. Keep up the good work. It's a good mix of computer-related topics, radio, electronics, projects, and helpful tips and hacks. I just picked up an iPod with video to watch your show as well as other, uh, as well as other video podcasts. The problem is when I try to subscribe to your iPod's RSS feed, iTunes gives me the error. There are no playable episodes for AmateurLogic.tv. The URL might point to a text-only episode or contain file types that iTunes cannot play. The feeds work great using Democracy Player as well as iPod or Lemon on my Apple iBook. Is it possible to get an iTunes compatible feed? You've been done some work on that, haven't you, Jim? Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, that should all be fixed and working now. However, if you have any more trouble or anyone has uh, anything different, in other words, you see that it's not working, please do send us an email. And you can send that email to admin at amateurlogic.com. Are you sure that's a good address? Yeah, it is. Okay. <laughs> what have you been working on this summer, Jim? Tell us what you did on your summer vacation. Well, actually, uh, some pretty interesting stuff for the for the geeks out there, the real radio geeks or electronics geeks, either one. Now, he's talking about the real geeks. That's <laughs> not for lightweights. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. <laughs> uh, kind of getting back down to the component level. Uh, electronic builders will use electronics builders will use capacitors in a lot of their projects and radio geeks will use capacitors in a lot of antenna systems and uh, me being one of uh, falling into both of those categories. He's uh, got a double dose. <laughs> <laughs> I decided that I would build my own high voltage capacitors because uh, Regular capacitors you can go out and buy a dime a dozen, right, George? What does one yeah. cost? <laughs> oh, man, just, I don't know, pennies? Yeah, no. you can get regular old capacitors for literally a dime a dozen, maybe. But uh, high-voltage capacitors run you up in the $100, $200 range. Is that could. about right? Yeah, very well could. So uh, I found a couple of references on the Internet where you could build your own and decide to give it a go. But, you know, just looking at this thing, I would not have known this was a capacitor. Yeah, it does not look like one, does it? Or what does a high-voltage capacitor look like? I'm not even sure I've ever seen a well, commercial I've, one. I've seen plenty of them, and they don't look exactly <laughs> like this. <laughs> uh, the but question this is, is, nice. is, does it work? Why, how did you build this? Uh, well, with, with my hands, and uh, matter of fact, that's what the video shows. <laughs> so let's take a look. Okay. So, how do you build your own capacitor? Well, you start with pudding cups or party cups. We're using pudding cups because uh, they have a little bit less surface area. It's a nice thick cup, which is important for our purposes, as you'll see later. Also, we'll be using some aluminum foil tape. This is without foam backing, just the aluminum foil tape with adhesive on the back. This is with the foam backing. We're not sure which is going to be better. We're going to do a little experimentation. Bondo or poly resin fill filler is something we'll use to fill the pudding cups after we wrap them in aluminum foil with a little aluminum tab coming up to conduct the electricity and stack them one inside the other. 
course, the polyresin is going to run out. The problem is just to be really messy and interesting, so you'll want to see that part. This is what we're wrapping them with, extra heavy duty aluminum foil. That goes to width, not, not width this way, thickness. That's what I'm trying to say. That's important too. And we're going to make a couple of type capacitors. The other one involves a piece of PVC. This is a you know, plumbing pipe, regular old water pipe. This is three quarter inch, which may be too small for our purposes. We might get a little bit bigger piece before we actually start building, but we'll cut it. Uh, and then about an inch from either end, uh, we'll uh, glue a piece of aluminum foil on the inside and outside, thus separating them. You know, that's what a capacitor is, by the way. A couple of conducting surfaces separated by an insulator. And uh, that's not a definition out of Webster's or anything, but it'll do. Capacitors resist the change in flow of electricity. Uh, I think I didn't look that up either. And of course, we've got our requisite rag to clean up the mess with. Ready to get started? Oh, I almost forgot to mention, uh, part of our inspiration for today's projects come from uh, the World Wide Web, a couple of pages you might want to look up. Uh, here come those URLs on your screen. First is uh, Mark Metlica's Party Cup Capacitor. Hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly, Mark. Also, uh, Jochen Kronjäger, if uh, my German <laughs> is up to par, which I seriously doubt, Jochen has a high voltage capacitor page, which we've also borrowed from. So without further ado, let's get messy. Okay, so here's cup number one. Let's let you get a good look at that. So you can see where we've attached our aluminum foil tab. Don't you think that smoothed out nicely? I mean, it's still got a lot of wrinkles in it, but uh, overall, the wrinkles are not bad. Here's what the bottom looks like, where we put a little piece of the tape to secure the bottom. And here's the seam. You probably can't differentiate, but anyway, there's a piece of aluminum foil tape right here that uh, holds the seam together and holds the tab in. Actually, the one on the inside holds the tab in, but you can't, can't hardly see that. This will come up and be our electrical connection once we put all the cups together, filled with polyresin, like so.
So Jim, that's pretty cool, but you know, what would you use a pudding cup capacitor for? <laughs> well, that's a very good question, George. And the answer is, in uh, for my particular purpose and in a lot of other purposes, for an antenna system that listens on the very low frequencies like AM yeah. or below mm -hmm. AM on the what's called the very low frequencies, uh, you can make an antenna, but it's only good for just a very short space on the dial. But by adding this capacitor, you can make your antenna cover more space on the dial. Oh, okay. So you, you increase go. the bandwidth. That's yeah, okay. yeah. That's a, you increase the bandwidth of your antenna. Okay, cool. Hey. How many pounds did you gain uh, building that? Two dollars <laughs> those cups of pudding. Actually, my wife and children ate all of that pudding. <laughs> I didn't eat any of it. <laughs> what about you? Missed you? Out. You've lost weight. <laughs> yeah, I've lost almost fifty pounds. Yeah, change that hairstyle. Moved to Missouri, man. Whole new you, <laughs> me. <laughs> well, I've got another email here concerning a previous episode. This one comes from our friend, Robert. And he's saying, uh, George, I just watched your video episode on modifying the Radio Shack 33-013 electric condenser microphone. That was very impressive stuff. I'm a legal videographer and use these mics all the time. I run these connected to my Behringer and Mackie mixers. For better signal, I use an eighth inch to quarter inch adapter with a quarter inch to XLR adapter uh, to my devoted XLR inputs on my mixer. This gives me much better results than using a quarter inch inputs. Hmm, I wouldn't have thought so, but I guess it's maybe a better impedance match. Uh, using your tweaks, I would be able to phantom power these from the power on my mixer and save a lot of money on buying these uh, 1.5 volt cell batteries all the time and worried about one dying during a disposition. <laughs> <laughs> Have you tested the overall sound quality versus battery power and the new phantom power modification? Um, yeah, basically. Yeah, it's better. Uh, it's just, it just gives you a lot more headroom. Uh, it's harder to make the mic distort and gives you more volume. So I'm not electronically inclined, nor do I own a soldering iron. I live in Phoenix, Arizona. Is there a possibility I can pay you uh, to modify my mics? I have almost a dozen of these. If you can, let me know what you'd charge. P.S. I also have a Radio Shack table boundary microphone that uses the 1.5 volt cell battery too. I assume this can be done with it as well. And that's from Robert. Well, Robert, sorry, <laughs> but no, that won't work. George said he would modify the microphones for you, but uh, at the cost that it would be, which would be several hundred dollars per microphone, it would probably be cost prohibitive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for a $30 mic, I, I suppose so. Uh, no, what the problem is, is when we modified these for Phantom Power, it was to use with the Phantom Power that comes out of, uh, say, a camcorder or uh, a low-voltage device like that. Not really the professional phantom voltage. Your uh, Mackie mixer is going to have 48 volts coming out of it. Big voltage. Yeah. 
we only had nine volts coming out of these uh, little battery packs. This is what's powering our mics. And it's just a little nine volt uh, battery in there. And that is about all you can put to those elements. They'll take about 10 volts. Yeah. So unfortunately, no, they, they can't be modified for the real 48 volt phantom power. And there you have it. Yeah. Tommy, you got another email for us? I do. I have one from Nathan in Canada. My feedback is in regards to the surge protection on the site. You're correct about why the surge protector was causing an overload, although with some effort, I've managed to force surge protectors to work without gutting them. However, there's a much cleaner way to deal with inverter power, power conditioners. These have the circuitry and capacitance to turn a choppy, surgy, semi-sine wave into a true, clean, 115-volt sine wave. They handle both dips and surges, too. They're available for many online retailers, and most professional audio dealers will also carry them. J just a thought from a viewer who really enjoyed the show. It's on Nathan. I appreciate the tip, Nathan. Um, and for those others, I guess you've seen, uh, Nathan's referring to the, I guess that was episode two we did on uh, uh, was that the dirty power. power. Was that two? No. That was number one. Yes, that was three. One. <laughs> no, that, that <laughs> was, no, it was four. No. It, no, really, actually, it was four. Actually, you're right. It was episode one. Yeah, because episode <laughs> one, one, yeah, remember that was released right after Katrina? Yeah, yeah you're right. You're right. That's when all uh, this stuff was important. <laughs> No doubt. I'm going back and look at the yeah. tapes. Anyway, yeah, that's an excellent uh, <laughs> suggestion. Those power conditioners do work great. Kind of expensive, though. Yeah, very true. Well, George, what did you do this summer? Well, <laughs> I didn't take a vacation this summer. Just, I don't know, never got around to it. Just too much going on. I didn't either. Tommy did, though, the rascal. But I Man, didn't. I didn't really take much of a vacation. <laughs> But I did make this uh, little video here just to, uh, I had a, had a few little things I was curious about. Uh, Inquisitive George, you know. Yes. And <laughs> anyway, um, a few little items I was thinking about, you know, how are they doing this? What does a toy boat, a wind-up radio, and an electric toothbrush have in common? Sometimes I like to open up things and see what makes them tick. And today I picked out three little electronic items here that are a bit strange in the way that they receive their power. I thought we'd have a look at each uh, to see what makes them tick. First, let's take a quick look at this Braun Oral-B electric toothbrush. Now I've got to admit, this one uh, threw me for a loop at first. I had to think about it quite a while before I figured out how they were charging the battery in this device. I believe it has a nickel metal hydride battery in it, uh, which is pretty standard. But uh, if you look at the bottom of the toothbrush, there's a little uh, hole here. And that fits over a little post down here on the charging base. Now what's strange about this is everything's insulated. There's no metal contacts anywhere here on either the uh, toothbrush or on the charging post. So how are they getting electricity out of here into the toothbrush to charge it? A, hidden contacts, although it doesn't appear that there's anything there. B, capacitive coupling. C, inductive coupling. Or D, magic. While you're thinking about that, 
we'll look at the other two items. I bought this at a local drugstore one day for about uh, $10 because I didn't have one and I wanted a wind-up radio. Well, you can run it off batteries if you like. It has a battery compartment for a couple of double A's. Or it's got a handy uh, wind-up generator here that you can charge it with. Simply turn the crank to make your own electricity. Now what I found interesting about this is that uh, it keeps playing after you stop cranking. So where's the electricity going? Um, there are no batteries in here. Where is it coming from or how is it being stored? Also, um, just as an aside here, what about alternator noise? We'll flip it to AM. Yeah, it's pretty bad. <laughs> so, how is this thing holding a charge? Well, let's open it and see. Well, how about that? It does have batteries. And there it is, a pair of AAA 300 milliampere hours. So the little hand crank uh, merely charges up the uh, what looks to be a NICAD battery pack. Well, we know that in practice, uh, NICADs are probably not made for a, a duty cycle and charge cycle like this, but it'll last for a little while. Not the best radio I ever had. Now let's look at the toy boat. This one is pretty weird indeed. There's a little battery pack. You put about, uh, it's either six or eight uh, AA cells in here. And it's got a little plug. You plug it into the back of the boat. You push a little button on the battery box. The LED lights. And after a period of time, say uh, 60 seconds or so, the LED goes out and then the boat is charged and ready to run. So uh, how is this working? Are there uh, a pair of NICADs in this uh, boat that are being charged? Well, let's have a look. There's water. I don't see a battery pack, but what I do see is two electrolytic capacitors. So apparently the uh, battery voltage just charges up these two electrolytics and then that's what runs the boat. And now back to our mystery item, the brawn toothbrush. How are they getting a charging voltage from the charging stand into the toothbrush? Well, our choices were A, hidden contacts, although it doesn't appear that there's anything there. B, capacitive coupling. C, inductive coupling. Or D, magic. First, let's uh, look for hidden contacts. We'll bring in our uh, trusty voltmeter.
stretching all the way around and I don't see any hint of a fluctuation on the meter at all. So I'm saying no. There are no hidden contacts there. B, capacitive coupling. Well, I don't know exactly uh, how you would get a capacitor big enough uh, in the microfarad or farad range to charge a toothbrush. Uh, I don't think you could fit it in something this small. C, inductive coupling. Well, uh, that would be like a, uh, a transformer is inductive. And it took me a while to think of this uh, as possibly being the solution and then how to prove it. So the first thing I did, I said if it's inductive, it possibly is magnetic. But uh, that didn't seem to be the case. It wouldn't uh, hold a paper clip. So if it's uh, inductive and that's like a transformer, I just happen to have a handy coil of wire and both ends are available. I have no idea what this came out of. It's possibly a speaker crossover, an old solenoid. Uh, I, I just have no idea. I've had it for years and years. So anyway, we'll just slide it down on the post. Now we'll take our voltmeter and we'll touch the two ends of the wire. Approximately 25 volts AC coming out of this coil. So there's the answer. C. Inductive coupling. This is actually a transformer. Half of the transformer is in the charging base and the other half is in the bottom of the toothbrush. If you have something that uh, you'd like to see explored on the bench, just drop me an email, george at amateurlogic.tv. Okay, I like that, George, especially the mystery, you know, the little ABC. Yeah, what did you choose, Jim? <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I knew that it was not A. Okay. And that's what, all I'm going to say about that. No, about? <laughs> actually, I, I, I did actually get it right after I saw B. <laughs> what about you, Tommy? What did you think? Oh man, I thought it was D. D. <laughs> yeah, magic. That was pretty amazing. Magic, yeah. That's pretty amazing. It was pretty Very amazing. Ingenious. Yeah, it it took a minute to think about that. It should have come to me a lot quicker than it did. But, yeah. You know what you how, you reckon? A lot of toothbrushes are made that way? No, that's the only one I've ever seen just like that. Most of them usually have some kind of metal contact yeah. or something in there. That was uh, definitely interesting. It is basically just a transformer split into two parts. Yeah. Yeah, definitely yeah. interesting. Got another email for us, Jim? Uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, this one from Joe. Joe's in Phoenix, and he says, I discovered Amateur Logic TV a few months back after my move to Phoenix. Discovered it while researching internet and TV shows, in fact. Absolutely love the show. Thanks, Joe. I wanted to take a minute to thank you for providing the show. Besides great content, I appreciate it for its entertainment value also. Needless to say, I've recommended it to many of my friends. I hope one day to be able to contribute to your efforts since my interests are completely aligned with yours, including amateur video production. We'd like that. Talk to you about that in just a second. All best to you. Best wishes to Tommy on his recent move to Missouri. Seven threes. That's from Joe into Q. 
Q-O-J is Job's call for those other amateurs listening. What about uh, that? What about contributing, uh, especially when it comes to video? Yeah, if, if there's any of you out there who've, uh, you know, got some video that you'd like to submit to us that you think would suit, you know, the show or, or fit in with it, please do, you know. Absolutely. Send it to us. You can, if you're not sure how to get the video to us, send, email a, us. send an email to George or Jim at AmateurLogic.com or Tommy at AmateurLogic.com and uh, we'll uh, tell you how best, given your particular situation, how best to get that video to us. We would love to have some submissions and uh, certainly we'll look at using those on the show. Yeah, you could even send it to AmateurLogic.tv. That will work, too. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. AmateurLogic.tv. You knew that. Yeah, but we would like to have some videos. If you got something out there that uh, you'd like to share with us, please do. George, you got any emails left in the email well, bag? Well, we have one more email left in the email bag for this episode, but those of you who've written that we haven't read your email yet, we're saving them, and... Uh, you know, we'll get to it. Uh, yeah. As, as we cover those topics, you know, we may have some actual content to go with your email. So uh, stay tuned. Now, this one just came in uh, this past week, Jim. Okay. Saying, hi, guys. First off, thanks for an awesome show. Second, you'll have to excuse my English if I spell some words badly or make funny sentences. I'm from the great uh, country in Scandinavia called Denmark. Ah, the frozen north country. <laughs> yeah. So far, he writes better than I do. So. Yeah, really. Yeah, me too. Well, I would not have thought English was his second language. I'm telling you. Okay. He says, but I was wondering something. You know those nice Sennheiser wireless headphones? Say if I want to wear them outside while mowing the lawn or something, and I want to move around the house and still listen to music, I doubt the antennas... Uh, coming with the piece will be able to reach me. Now we've seen uh, people building these cantinas out of Pringles boxes and so on. Is there any way possible to build some kind of antenna that can cover the area around my house so I can mount this thing on my roof and jump around in the garden while listening to my music? <laughs> I know the antenna things that uh, come with the headphones can reach out to about a hundred meters before they, uh, but he says there are a lot of trees and such covering uh, the whole thing. I just thought I'd ask you guys, since you have done some nice modifications before, thanks and regards from Jacob in Denmark. Thanks, well, Jacob. Yeah. And uh, first I, of all, those uh, nice Sennheiser headphones are very nice. Yes. I don't know that I would want to jump around in the garden with those on, but if that's what you want to do, I understand you, you want coverage. Yeah, now the uh, I haven't got a set of those headphones myself. I have some old wired Sennheisers from years ago, but I don't have the wireless ones, so I don't really know what frequency these operate on, and that is critical to your success. Right. Let me just show you a theoretical modification here. Um, Uh-oh, Tommy, you ready now, for this? <laughs> I, I don't know if you can apply this um, to the Sennheisers or not. But about the only way that you can take a small transmitter and improve the range of it is uh, through the antenna. Antennas. 
Now this little device here is called an iRock. This is uh, just a little FM transmitter like you'd plug into an iPod or a CD player. And it's got a little switch. You can select what frequency you want to be on. This works in the FM band. As in FM radio. Yeah, now this one's been modified in a couple of different ways. First, it came with just a uh, AAA batteries and it had a couple of those in it. So it only played a couple of hours and it was dead. So um, I sawed it up and hacked it up real good where I could fit a couple of double A's and it'll go for days now. <laughs> it doesn't, in, it's still the same voltage. What's that, Tommy? You got anything that hadn't been modified? I knew he was going to ask that. Uh, no, as a matter of fact, no, I don't. <laughs> so anyway, um, as this device shipped, I opened it up, looked in here. The antenna lead is just a wire that runs down inside the little cable that plugs oh, into your iPod. Ah. Uh, that's what they're using for the antenna. I see. Well, if you looked at your uh, the antenna on your car for FM is what? <laughs> 31 inches? Yeah, a little, little uh, longer than this. And the reason is that's, you know, we're, we're trying to tune that uh, for the FM band. Correct. Uh, for the FM wavelength. So this is too short. This is nowhere near what we need. So basically all I did is uh, went out and measured uh, the length of the antenna on my vehicle. Or you could have calculated out, you know, a wavelength. That's right. And uh, I added this little wire right here ah. that is the right length for the frequency that this operates on. So now I can go out in the yard, jump around in the garden, <laughs> mow my grass or do whatever, and, and listen to it on a Walkman. Uh, now I'm thinking the Sennheisers are probably a lot higher frequency than this. So... Um, yeah, they might be on the 2.4 gig band. I really don't know. So your possibilities of modifying it are going to be less. Um, more than likely, the antenna is already the right length that's on it. But if you can determine what frequency it is, that's where you'd begin. Yeah, you could look up the formula, couldn't you, and, and uh, determine what, uh, what the correct measurement is and improve the antenna, most likely. Yeah, you just uh, look at the formula to convert frequency to wavelength, and I used to know it. So 300 uh, divided by the frequency in megahertz. Okay, I don't remember, but... <laughs> we'll take Jim's word for it. <laughs> oh. Well, we've enjoyed it. Yes. Uh, boy, is it that time again? It's that time again. Wow, another episode gone, just like that. Yep. Tommy, what do you think about that? Eight of them. Eight of them. Eight. Can you believe it? <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. You're first from Missouri? Yep. I think the remote shoot went fairly well. Yeah, this, this did seem to work pretty well. This is our first attempt at using uh, Skype to do this to get on Tommy. And yeah, the next next time though, I hope you guys will clean these spots off of the inside, off the monitor right there so I can see a little better. <laughs> <laughs> we got you. There you go. <laughs> well, that's it for episode number eight. We do hope you enjoyed it, and uh, we look forward to seeing you again next month. Tommy, say adios. Adios. <laughs> Adios. Goodbye.
Yes, that's right. Jim's taking the battery out of the Macintosh because, <laughs> because he can't get it to power back up. Uh, that's not good because that's a recalled battery. I'm, yeah. I'm trying to, oh, yeah. So I, I, I take the battery out of this thing so infrequently that I did not at first remember how to take it out. Yeah. That's, um, I suspect if you searched online, you could probably find something now on removing the battery from your Macintosh. <laughs> yes, it's got a... Is this one of those batteries, Jim? Look, it's still running. Wow, the light is still on. Show our viewers. <laughs> See that? That's the sleep light yeah. on a Macintosh. Apparently, these Sony batteries are wilder than we thought. <laughs> yeah, they're so powerful that uh, they can charge your Macintosh. This is one of the uh, recalled ones? Yeah, it is. Wow. It just hadn't made it in yet. <laughs> Better be careful with that. Maybe I that. shot that part outside. <laughs> this is wild. The, the, the laptop has no power whatsoever. See, here's a, here's a battery test. Well. Oh. It is low. 